Welcome to Guys Open. I'm your host, Christopher Fisher. We have today on the show, Craig Fisher, and uh, maybe Laurent's coming to join us too. We'll see. Uh, but we are going to be going over Jeremiah 26, just reading this chapter and kind of just uh, doing a Bible study on it, live one. Craig, thanks for coming to the program. Well, thanks for inviting me. <laughs> well, you, you sent me all sorts of documents over the last few days about Jeremiah 26. And uh, I read all those, and then I also read the entire Word Biblical Commentary on Jeremiah 26. It's, it's really funny, Word, Word Biblical Commentary, um, that entire book series is written by like professionals, by scholars. And so when you're, when you're reading them, they all sound like open theists because they're just talking about what the text says. They're like, yes, and this is what's going on here, and this is how it works in the narrative, and they probably frame it like this for this reason. It's all about analytical reading of the text. And they all sound like open theists. They might not be open theists in real life, but surely when they're writing about, uh, they, they do their own translations too. And so, so the word biblical commentaries uh, talks about different various word usages and then uh, different ways to take different verses. And then it does an analysis of the text. These guys are very thorough and none of them sound like Calvinists. <laughs> Well, it's not a Calvinistic text, and I don't know how you could, I don't know what uh, John Calvin says about this, but I don't know how you could fit determinism into Jeremiah 26. Well, well we'd have, we maybe have to go see if uh, he's, does he have commentary? He doesn't have commentaries on the full Bible, but uh, does he have commentaries on Jeremiah? I think he does, because I think I might have grabbed some Jeremiah 18 stuff from him before. But uh, I'll, I'll try to pull up the word biblical commentary, and then we can pull up to see if we can't find what Calvin says. But do you want to give us an introduction to this text, a historical background? Sure. Um, Josiah was a godly king. He reigned from about 640 to 609. <clears throat> During his reign in, in 622, some uh, book of the Torah was found in some people say it was the whole Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy, but other people are thinking that was just Deuteronomy. But as they were doing renovations in the temple that he was uh, facilitating, because his father Amnon and his grandfather Manasseh were very evil people, but he sparked a revival. He took over the throne when he was eight years old in 640, and for whatever reason, he, he was a, a Yahwehist. He believed in, in Yahweh. When they're doing renovations in the temple to go back to temple worship, they find the book of the Torah, and that was in 622. And, and after he did that, uh, God blessed him. He uh, actually asked advice. He went to a prophetess called Halda, and what she told him, was that uh, the Lord, the Lord uh, favored him, that he was going to to have a long reign, and he would uh, go to his father's in peace. And, and uh, that was in six forty. In in six oh nine, well, about from six twenty two to six oh nine, Judah kind of they had a. Uh, a brief period of independence under his father and grandfather they were vassals of Syria of Assyria 
But uh, Syria was going through some difficulties with not only internal strifes, but they were uh, being invaded. They didn't have time for Israel. So uh, during Josiah's reign for about 20 years, they um, they left Jerusalem alone, and, and uh, Josiah was pretty independent. But uh, during that time, uh, Pharaoh Necho in Egypt and Assyria were having problems with Babylon. So they were joining forces to go fight against Babylon, who was, who was pretty much taking over. And Babylon uh, defeated Assyria uh, in that period from 609 to 605. And then uh, Josiah, for whatever reason, the Bible's not clear, he decided that he had to go and defeat Pharaoh Necho, who was coming up along the Mediterranean on the, the way of the sea, they called it. But before he could get into Assyrian territory, he had to go over the Carmel uh, Mountains. So you, you know where um, Mount Carmel is. That's where Elijah had the battle um, with the um, false Baal prophets, and then he ended up having fire come down from heaven, consuming the sacrifice. Well, that that's Mount Carmel. But there, there's a Mount Carmel range that separates the uh, plain that's in the sea. If you look at the Mediterranean, there's a there's a plain that leads all the way up to Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel range kind of goes into the ocean, so you can't just go around by the way of the sea. You have to actually go in through one of three passes. Now, there's a pass at the top, Jocneum, that ends in Jocneum, that goes into the Valley of Jezreel. There's a path through Megiddo, and then there's a southern pass <clears throat> that actually has two two branches that go in uh, from that. But Pharaoh Necho apparently was in a hurry and wasn't expecting Josiah to be there opposing him. It's thought probably Josiah would have gone up through the Jordan Valley then he would have got to the the, the uh, Valley of, of Jezreel, <clears throat> and he was waiting for Pharaoh Necho at Megiddo, which isn't a bad plan at all. And, and it's happened throughout the centuries, and there was another uh, Pharaoh that, that went up in the same way, and, and they, they had the same problem, is that when they went over Mount Carmel Range, there's a road three roads that go over the range, but you have to go almost single file when you're with your chariots. So going single file through through these roads and stuff, you're more exposed. So if you're, you could be ambushed in the mountains, that would be a good place to take on these chariots because the value of chariots is they're maneuverable and on the plane, they were, uh, in their day, they were the tanks. They were they, they won the battles in those days. <clears throat> but when you're in a mountain pass and you can't maneuver, that's a good time to attack. Or if you have chariots yourself, like Josiah did, you might want to, to wait on the plain of Megiddo. And then as each chariot came out single file from the pass at Megiddo, you could attack that chariot, maybe wipe out the whole army because you would have maneuverability, you'd have uh, tactical advantage in that one area so that 
uh, you would you could send three, four, five chariots against one as each one came out of the pass. That, that was a good idea. Uh, and then Pharaoh Necho knew that Josiah was going. He found out Josiah was waiting for him. He sent a message to him. And so you go to Second um, Chronicles and look at the message. It's very strange. He says, <clears throat> um, "God has told me that you." Um, I think it's in Second Chronicles. He said that he said that God has told me that you are not to fight me. That you're supposed to leave and go back to Jerusalem. And then, then they get into the fight, and somehow Pharaoh Nickel wins. It, uh, Josiah is hit by arrows, is in, immorally wounded, and they take him back to Jerusalem where he dies. But it, and strangely, in Second Chronicles, it says that God was speaking through Pharaoh Nickel, <laughs> and uh, and that's opposite of uh, the prophecy that Huldah gave him in, in 2 Kings. And he said that you're going to go to your fathers in peace. So, so, so what does that mean? He, it said in the Bible that he disobeyed God, that Pharaoh Necho said, go away, don't fight me, this isn't your battle. But he fought him anyway, and then he died. <clears throat> and said that God told Pharaoh Necho to tell him that he was going to die, <clears throat> to warn him away from the battle. But Huldah had said that he'd go to his fathers in peace. Uh, I don't know how to understand this other than the openness of God. If, if Josiah, maybe on the strength of that prophecy that he had, thought he couldn't be killed in battle, maybe he was just arrogant and, and fighting what was undoubtedly one of the great powers of the of the Middle East at the time with the army in Jerusalem, which I don't know how big it was, but it couldn't have been a real match for the the battle of Pharaoh Pharaoh's army. So arrogantly he decides on his own that he's going to go up and fight Pharaoh Necho in a in a war that he wasn't involved in, that he that he was inserting himself into. Perhaps he thought, well if Egypt wins and Assyria wins, and then we'll be made a vassal state of Assyria again. So he sided temporarily with the Babylonians. But in either case, he went alone without the Babylonians. He was defeated in battle. That was 609. <clears throat> so 609, he's taken to Jerusalem. His youngest son, whose name was Shalom, but they, they renamed him Jehoahaz, he became king which was kind of funny because he had three older brothers. <laughs> and two of those older brothers would eventually become kings, the like King Zedekiah, which was the last king of the area, and then this king that we find in Jeremiah 26, Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim, he was a bad king. All, all the sons of Josiah were bad kings. But Jehoiakim... Kim, uh, from six, 609 to 605, he was a vassal of Egypt. But in, in 605, they have the, the historically important battle of Carchemish, which is in Syria, where Egypt eventually fought Babylon, lost badly. And, uh, Egypt went back. They withdrew all the battle. And, of course, Babylon 
uh, came into ascendancy. So Jehoiakim, not being an idiot, switched sides. <laughs> so he was on the side of Egypt from 609 to 605, and then 605 and, and until his death, uh, he was a, a vassal of Nebuchadnezzar. But we find him here in Jeremiah 26 during the first part of his reign. This is a 609 to 605 period where he's a, a vassal of Egypt. And Jeremiah is starting in Jeremiah 26, 1. Uh, he starts his prophecy against Jehoiakim, who's a bad guy and wants to kill him. Yeah, so there's a lot of interesting things that go on within this uh, chapter. And, and uh, Word Biblical Commentary points out a couple of them. A lot of this stuff is framed in God's words rather than fast forwarding to, let's say, Jeremiah out on the streets preaching to people. Instead, the narrative is about this is what God says. It, it, it shifts the authority back to God rather than the prophet. It says this, thus says the Lord, verse two, stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak to all your city, to all the cities of Ju Judah that come to worship in the house of the Lord. All the words that I commanded you to speak to them. Do not hold back a word. It might be, it may be, they will listen, and everyone turn from his evil ways, that I may relent of the disaster that I intend to do them because of their evil deeds. Let's uh, pull up what uh, they have in the word biblical commentary. It says, do not hold back a word. Perhaps they will listen and turn back, each one from his or her, in uh, brackets, evil way. So that I'll repent of the evil which I am planning to do to them because of the evil of their doings. Yeah, this is really interesting. So the only, the only answer to the failed prophecy of Huldah is open theism, where if a man changes his way, the Lord is free to change his mind about blessing him. And then Josiah gets killed. The whole nation mourns. Then <clears throat> Jeremiah... Jeremiah 26.3 says, perhaps, perhaps, Uli, perhaps always introduces a, a clause, and sometimes it's a subjunctive that it's, it's, a, it's one of unknown, it's, it's not a declarative sentence, but it has a potentiality. It can go one way or the other. So when you... When he uses this imperative, stand in the court of the Lord and speak all the city, the, all the cities of Judah, you know, Israel, northern Israel, has been captured by Assyria in 722. They're out of the picture, but all the cities of Judah, uh, they go to Jerusalem to worship. Uh, according to the Deuteronomy, you have to have a central worship place. And when David conquered Jerusalem, Jerusalem became their place of worship. So all the all the cities of the area had to go to Jerusalem in order to offer their sacrifices and worship. So he's standing in the court bravely, and he's preaching sedition. And he's so, yeah, it's it's incredibly brave because further on in the chapter, it details a guy who's not so lucky who's tracked down all the way to Egypt and killed by Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim? Jehoiakim? Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim. So, uh, I believe that was Micah, right? 
So, so Micah has an identical message to Jeremiah. Uh, they tried to kill Micah. They're speaking the same words against Micah, uh, Uriah. I'm sorry. They're speaking the same words against Uriah. And he gets, he becomes afraid and he runs off to Egypt. Well, he couldn't go to Babylon because they were fighting a series of civil uh, wars out there and skirmishes and he'd probably be killed as a spy. So he runs off to Egypt. Jehoiakim is a vassal of Egypt. There's probably extradition treaties between uh, Jerusalem and Egypt. So it didn't end up as a good place for him. So they come and they drag him away. They bring him into the court or where Jer Jeremiah was given his message. He had said the identical probably message that Jeremiah was saying, and they killed him. <clears throat> so it takes a lot of courage to stand in the court. And, and then what's God trying to do? He says, perhaps... Perhaps they will repent. What does repent mean? It's almost always translated relent by modern versions. Relent means uh, to be less severe. Repent. <laughs> repent. If you go to the Septuagint, you look at Jeremiah 18. Repent is metanoia. It's change your mind. It's two. It's a double. Um, it's one word made of two words, which is change and mind. And this is all it can be. He's not telling them um, if you uh, we're going to make it less severe for you. But when when they when they're taken over, the men are taken away in chains. The women are abused. The children are sold into slavery. It's not a good time, <laughs> and it's not an idea of it's going to be less severe for you. I'm looking at what Calvin says. Yeah, relent even, just just the word itself seems to be a worse translation because when you think about relenting, maybe, maybe you're wrestling and then you're losing the fight, so you relent and you give up or something like that. So even the word itself has bad connotations, but the word is specifically chosen by Calvinist translators because it sounds better than repent. And of course, repent has its own connotations that people ascribe to it. Oh, you only repent when you sin. Well, that's not quite true. A repentance is just changing your mind, turning and going the other way. God says he's going to do something. Uh, some other thing happens. Uh, God changes his mind. He repents of what he said he was going to do. It's a turning away. It's a, it's a going back. It's, it's reversing course. And so it is... It is a good word to use. There might, of course, be some of those negative connotations with sin, but what's a better one? Changed his mind? That could that could work fairly well there if you use the phrase. It has to be. But here's here's Calvin on Jeremiah twenty six three by saying Uli, if peradventure he made use of a common mode of speaking. That indeed, <laughs> has perfect knowledge of all events. No one he had any doubt respecting what would take place when the, the prophets had discharged their duties. But what is pointed out and is condemned is the obstinacy of the people, as though he had said that it was indeed difficult to heal those who had grown 
putrid in their evils, yet he would try to do so. I, I don't know how this counts for exegesis. He's just denied what God is saying. It says, perhaps they will repent. He says, God has perfect knowledge. Then why would he say, perhaps? Why would he use this? Why? And you, sometimes Ulai is a, a conditional statement. You know, if you do this thing, then this will result. This is surely conditional. He says, repent. Perhaps they will turn everyone from his evil way. If God knew like he says, Kelvin says here that God has perfect knowledge, then he would be lying to them. He would be giving them a false hope. And, and there would be no point at all in saying, repent. What, what, what would be the purpose? You know they're not going to repent. So you just say that so that in the day of judgment that you're held to be extra guilty of something that you've been preordained to do since the beginning of time. It just it just makes no sense to me. And so if you, if you look at how word biblical commentary, this is pretty normal, them writing. It's, he says, in chapter 26, the divine word addresses to the prophet, the address has uh, three parts. A commission to prophecy to a particular audience at a specific location. Two, a description of the hoped-for response. And three, the oracle itself. Uh, often, often these uh, writers, these commentaries in the in the series will say, "Well, God hoped for this to happen, and it didn't materialize." Divine hopes have been thwarted time and time again. So, uh, I do suggest reading Word Biblical Commentary. And I also suggest reading Calvin on it because sometimes he has good stuff, but uh, he he always looks uh, ex post facto. What's my theology? What does the text say? How do I make the text align with my theology, which I know is true? And so sometimes you'll get those weird readings where he says, I know it says this, but really, that's not an accurate description of reality. Well, it's it's lazy exegesis. You're not exegeting at all. You are just... You're, you're just making... You know what your theology has. You know what you want it to say. And then you're overriding uh, the words of God. I'm looking for a specific quote on 26.3 from Calvin. Yeah, so idioms have meaning. So uh, sometimes the Bible does use idiomatic speech. Um, I was wrought in the lowest parts of the earth um, from the womb I came to the womb I'm going to return. There seems to be an idea in ancient Israel that uh, equated the womb with the lowest parts of the earth, that they're idiomatically interchangeable with each other. But you kind of get that from context because what's going on in context kind of doesn't make sense. And so you, you kind of see these threads throughout the Bible in which two ideas are kind of equated. Idioms have meaning. And so you have to be able to explain what the idiom means such that's communicating something of value to the audience. What Calvin is doing with this text is not that. He's, in, he's instead saying, this is just sufflurious language. This is just God talking to our level. It doesn't actually mean anything. It's not communicating things of value uh, that, uh, that we could... Uh, uh, Terrence Freeman, uh, Free, Fred, Fredheim. Terrence Fredheim, in his book, uh, God's Suffering, Divine Suffering, he writes that metaphors need cognitive domain overlap. Metaphors are useful in such that they draw together two, 
two realms of thoughts, two ideas, two cognitive circles of thoughts and uh, tell us how they overlap in such a way that we are brought to familiarity with that idea. But that's not what Calvin does here. Yeah, and then he said that I may relent. It's really I may repent. When you look at the Hebrew word, the original Hebrew was done with just consonants. And, and then uh, Masoretes, after Jesus, in the A.D. time, that's probably 600 years after this was written, they, they do the pointing. But when they did the pointing, if they thought that the word, the word usually means comfort, but if they thought it referred to a change in mind, they pointed it, meaning they added balls, which which changed the binyan, the, the type of verb it was, and made it into a niffle verb. Now, the only reason they would have to do that is they wanted to use these niffle verbs of nakam to show that God actually repented from what he said. The only way they can do that is to get it out of context. If you look at the context, after Jeremiah 26.3, you have a big if clause, if they will not listen, if they will not walk before me in my way. That's the if, if with the protasses is, is that's what it's called. And then they said, if you will not to heed my words of my servants whom I have sent to you. And then he says in Jeremiah 26.6, he has the conclusion, the apodosis, and it says that I'll make your house like Shiloh. I'll make you a curse to all the nations. Shiloh was the first center of worship for Israel when they came across in Judges. That's the place where Eli took Samuel as a, uh, as a student. And, and that Shiloh was made desolate. It was destroyed. And so David had replaced Shiloh as a center of worship for Jerusalem. So he's, here's an if-then clause. If God knows that they're not going to do these things, there's no point on making this threat. There's, <laughs> what, what is the point of telling them? And anyone that reads this has to understand, God wanted them to change their ways. God did not want this prophecy to take place. He would have been very, very happy if they changed their ways. And he didn't have to bring this curse upon them. So that's why the Masoretes, when they looked at the pointing of Nakam in Jeremiah 26.3, that they turned it into a niffle. Yeah, so the interesting thing is that the, the, this threat, it doesn't seem to work on the rulers, but then there's a group of elders that step up and they listen to this threat and they say, hey, let's not touch this guy because um, in the past, um, God has turned against people for killing his prophets. And so uh, we need to respect God's prophets. And the elders seem to uh, convince the people of the city, the rulers of the city, not to execute him in this circumstance. Well, that's another interesting thing about Jeremiah 26. When you you look at it, first it says in, in 27, the priests, the prophets, the people, um, the, 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 the princes who are the rulers, 
all these people are speaking against Jeremiah and saying that they want to kill him. Then Jeremiah actually gives a defense. He says, yeah, you, you can kill me if you want, but I'm speaking for God. So, you know, God might want to take revenge here. <laughs> and, uh, and then they change their mind. You have the same people that were calling for him to die, appealing to the king to protect him and not kill him. So I, th I, so I think you have another change of mind here. You have a change in the people, the priests, the prophets, the rulers of that time. I don't know if you know, it was unanimous or anything, but evidently there was enough people to stop the execution from happening. Right. It doesn't seem to have converted the people as a whole into righteousness. They, they seem to have still gone down the wrong path. This isn't a national repentance chapter. No, they didn't, it doesn't say anything about repenting of their sins. They just didn't. They repented of wanting to kill Jeremiah. Right. <clears throat> Which I think is very interesting. You have God doing a series. He wants to repent. You have the people changing their minds and repenting because they just killed the, the other prophet. Well... <laughs> Which one came first? A man was also prophesying in the name of the Lord, Uriah the son of Shemal, from Kirat uh, Jerim. And so is this uh, the same time frame? Is it a little bit before? Is it a little bit after? It's kind of ambiguous there. No, no, you don't know. And the thing with Jeremiah, when you look at the way it's uh, arranged, Jeremiah 1 through 25 is a series of, of prophecies there and it's it's like a collection of prophecies what they call an anthology and you have in those chapters you have zedekiah addressed and zedekiah doesn't come on until um you know 597 to the fall of jerusalem 586 so that's way after jeremiah's time here in jeremiah 26 so what so to get a time frame, you have to kind of look at Jeremiah and and deal with the clues in the text to see which king and during which time he was talking. And now there's a I have a question. Is this two different stories? And did one happen before the other? Or it, just because it's comes after in the text doesn't mean that it happened subsequent to Jeremiah. <laughs> Uh, and uh, to me, it would make more sense if it happened before. But either way, it, it, it doesn't matter. Well, it seems to be contrasting how Jeremiah escaped a similar fate that happened to a similar prophet <laughs> around the similar time frame. And uh, before then, the, uh, the defense that they actually give for Jeremiah, that's talking about Micah. And they, they say, hey, there was a guy named Micah, and he was a prophet of God. So this guy, Jeremiah, he's probably also a prophet of God. Let's not touch him. And then the text jumps into highlighting this other instance in which a prophet did not escape the people. And so it's an interesting textual arrangement. And so uh, any thoughts about what's that, what, what, what that's communicating to Israel as they read this? What, what, what point is supposed to be making? That, hey, you had this great prophet who's in danger of his life. And re just remember, just remember, Israel, you've killed your prophets before. 
there's actual godly people prophesying from God, and you've laid hands on them and killed them. And you'll see this this uh, come up throughout the Bible, where they talk about the prophets that Israel has killed fr from since the foundation of the world. Well, what's interesting to me is like in Jeremiah 26, 15, Jeremiah gives his defense before the people. They all want to kill him prior to this. And he says, if you put to me to death, then you are putting to death innocent blood. So was that a good argument? And, and then everybody changed their mind? Or, you know, did God um, put that idea into their heads? Well, if you kill my prophet, then I'll take vengeance. And, you know, it doesn't necessarily, God doesn't have to coerce someone to do something, but he can put ideas into their minds and, and fulfill his purposes that way. So, I, you know, what, what happened here, we're not sure. So, Laron just uh, sent Jeremiah 36.3 as a parallel text. Uh, it starts in uh, 36.2. Take a scroll and write on it all the words that I've spoken to you against Israel and Judah and all the nations from the day I spoke unto you from that from the days of Josiah until today. It may be, it might be, that the house of Judah will hear all the disaster that I intend to do to them so that every one of them may turn from his evil way, that I may forgive their iniquity and sin. And so God has legitimate hopes for the people, and the hopes often don't materialize. God doesn't always get what he wants. He says, I intend to do to them, you know, or I think, or it's, uh, I'm not sure exactly the Hebrew word there. I'll go look that up. But uh, where was that, 36.3? 36.3, yeah. Okay, so here's here's the commentary from Word Biblical about the chapter break, the chapter divisions. Chapter 26 is a new unit, clearly distinguished from the poetry at the end of chapter 25 by the compound heading in verse 1. The almost identical heading in 27.1 sets the end boundary for this set of narratives. The lack of connecting verb at the beginning of the chapter also suggests the relative independence of this unit. And so Jeremiah could kind of be seen as different parts stapled together. I know uh, Michael Heiser always talks about like the divine stapler. We, we don't have to, for inspiration of the Bible, uh, for inerrancy, believe that someone just sat down and just wrote it beginning to end without any editors in the process. There is some evidence of editing. There's some evidence of disjointed structure or story or, or diverse units that are put together. And sometimes it's a chronological it's it's not in order yeah and, and jeremiah 36 3 is real good you know it starts out with that same word perhaps in in jeremiah 26 3 and then interestingly not enough it says uh which i intended or which i thought to do that koshop that that's the same word in jeremiah 18 you know where where god says of a nation uh, that's doing evil turns from its evil, then I will repent from the evil I thought to, I said I'd bring about it. And then the other way is if a nation does good and then it turns from its good, uh, then uh, God will turn from the good that that he thought to do to it. And this is the same word, kashab is thought, that from which I thought to do upon them. 
it's <laughs> that's whole that's Jeremiah's ministry and one one ten Jeremiah one ten he gives his his ministry and, and he and it's it's very interesting to me at least when you read this is uh reason everybody should learn Hebrew <laughs> because in Jeremiah 110 I have set before you this day over the nations and over the kingdoms and then he gives a series of verbs in the infinitive to root off lintosh to pull down the lintots to destroy ulha abid and then he has two other words the leave note to build and the Valintoa to plant. These are the same words that he's using in Jeremiah 18 when he says that if that nation, um, if I speak against a nation to, to root out, to pull down and to destroy it, and it turns from its evil, uh, then, I, then I will repent and not do to it the evil I intended to do. And it's, it's evil. A lot of times it's translated disaster. You know, you say God doesn't do evil, but that same word, raw, evil, God does evil at times to people, meaning he does things that aren't very good benefit to people. And then if uh, he speaks concerning nation to leave note, to build, or valintoa, to plant, and that nation turns from its good and does evil, then God, he will repent from what he thought to do to it and he will destroy it. So so all, Jeremiah is a very cohesive book. His prophecy fits very well together. So Irenic asks, how worthwhile is it to have the word biblical commentary? Uh, $1,200 <laughs> bucks on Logos? Ugh. So I, I waited like a year for the David Klein's Job series to come on sale on uh, Kindle format, and they were like 10 bucks for like two or three on uh, David Klein's writing about Job. So figure out which books of the Bible you really want it to be, and then uh, get one of those price notification apps or sign up for those websites. They'll send you a mail, like an email or something when it goes on sale, and then you could get it for real cheap. Because like once every like year, they'll go on sale on Amazon. And so don't, I would, ah, uh, no, don't do that. Don't do that. Oh man, <laughs> spending twelve hundred bucks on books is uh, real hard. It hurts. It hurts me inside quite a lot. If you have money like that to spend on books, go out and buy Logos Nine, and they will for about five or six hundred dollars. They'll give you a whole set of commentaries. They'll give you access to the Hebrew, the Greek, and parsing. All they have lots of good things on Logos Nine. That's six hundred dollars, but that's too much for me too. I <laughs> twelve hundred is too much. Maybe when uh, crypto shoots back up, and I'm a crypto million. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, all right, so Jeremiah twenty six. Uh, Jeremiah goes in. Uh, he prophesies to them. They want to kill him. He, he converts them. He, he actually saves himself, but he doesn't convert the city. And it, we're left with bad news. You know, uh, these things happen. Uh, prophets die. Prophets are killed. Jeremiah, subverted execution. The people kind of listened, but they really didn't. And uh, 
people just ignore God sometimes. God has hopes. God has plans for them, wants them to do certain things, wants them to repent, wants to bless them, but they just won't cooperate. Well, the thing with Jeremiah, too, is that when he gives Jeremiah his commission, he says that uh, don't be afraid of their faces. And he says, I will deliver you from them. And that deliver is the same word a lot of times we use for save. Yeah, so I, I think there's an implied, you know, even though he's going to be saying a lot of things, that he's going to deliver Jeremiah from these things. But apparently Micah did have that same promise. Uriah, yeah. Uriah, I'm sorry. I, I get it mixed up. Yeah, so that sometimes God promises to help people, and then the help's not very forthcoming. And so then you get the Psalms of Lament. Where are you, God? Uh, why have you hidden your face from me? I'm suffering. I am dying. Yeah, I'm in this bad position. Uh, Jeremiah and uh, Ezekiel. Ezekiel had a hard time, too. Uh, the people are persecuting him and laughing at him and mocking him. And he's just taking all this abuse. It's like, where is God when this, these things are happening? This is part of a divine commission after they've been personally commissioned by God. And Jeremiah went through a lot of suffering you know what you, uh, you're born you have a life what do you want to do you probably want to get married have kids celebrate feast together if someone dies you go to a funeral together and uh you you lament you have these personal relationships that you build up and you do it on purpose because you don't want to be alone your whole life but jeremiah was told not to do those things uh don't don't go to funerals don't go to feasts don't marry. He had a very lowly life. So here at Jeremiah 26, where he says, you know, I, I'm I'm innocent of the blood, but do to me whatever you want to do. He might just be <laughs> upset with life. He says, well, if I die, that's okay with me because I'm not having too much fun down here, God. That that actually that actually uh, is a very poignant point. That's probably accurate. I don't have much to live for. I've lived terribly. Just kill me. I, if I die, so be it. I don't care. Yeah, I think it's Jeremiah who uses the, the divine rape language. It's like, God, you have you have imposed yourself on me, uh, taken away everything. Basically, divine rape, as, as Walter Brueggemann points out in his book. And so, not a good life. All right, did you have... Or comments on this? Did you want to touch anything else in the, in the papers you sent me? Uh, yeah, in the, the one paper I sent you, I have Nakam. I, I went through every occurrence of Nakam, and I sometimes these forms look a lot like each other, and you can't. Um, they're the same pointing even, and so, but I counted uh, thirty-four times Nakam is used with the niffle. And 27 of those times, it's God repenting of something, God changing his mind of something. In context, like in Jonah, like in Amos, God changes his mind. It's, it's, it's just a fact that, that God changes his mind, that he doesn't have this set future in front of him, but he changes his mind according to the actions of the people. Yeah, that, that, there it is. 
Yeah. Right. So, so the person who repents most within the Bible is actually God. And that, that shocks a lot of people. But, uh, of course, he's got more time alive than everyone else in the Bible. So there's more times <laughs> to record the times he does repent. But it's, it's not uncommon that the word is ascribed to, to God. And so that, that's why it's really funny when Calvinists try to use like two verses uh, said by characters in the text, not even like the narrator or God talking, saying God doesn't repent. And that's supposed to be the dictum by which we take all these other verses, like these this 30-some other verses about God repenting. And it's a concept of immutability that God cannot change his mind. God cannot add any new information to his mind. If It's the completely Neoplatonic concept that if God uh, would add one one iota of extra knowledge to his mind, he wouldn't be God anymore. It would somehow destroy his essence or something. It's, it's, <laughs> it's not good. <laughs> uh, did, did you see there was a Warren McGrew had uh, an exchange with Tyler Vela, who's this idiotic Calvinist, and uh, words like, you don't believe God could think. And he's like, how dare you? How dare you accuse me of that? <laughs> well, God does think, but not like us. He doesn't think and have discursive thoughts. No, so God doesn't think. But <laughs> so he 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 takes this. Uh, uh, I should pull up that whole exchange because it's real funny. He he gets really mad at being about being accused of believing God doesn't think, and then <laughs> needs to qualify it, and then admits he doesn't believe that God thinks. Well, the the whole idea is from uh, Plotinus. He believed God's knowledge was noetic. It means not discursive, where you had one thought after another, but he just knew everything at one time. It's like um, he perceived things, uh, but he didn't analyze them. He didn't look down from heaven and see what was going on and add new knowledge. He just knew everything from the from for, for all time. And that uh, noetic description of of the way God sees things is throughout the Bible is it, never it's never presented in the Bible. God's thoughts are always discursive. He's always gathering information. He's looking down. He's talking to people. He's in time. <laughs> yes, yeah, just how casually the word is used too. It's like the biblical authors, they it it didn't they didn't mind to use the word about with God in relation to God. It's just it's just in the text. Uh, God will repent if you do this. It's casual without a second thought. It's very interesting that our theology in the modern world, people are very averse to using God's name in the same sentence as repentance. It shows a completely different mindset. We're, we're living in a different theological milieu, a different a theological, uh, different theological worldview than they had back then. And, and I, I want to say this right now: those people, those translators that we're so enthralled with, are given all these new interpretations, and they're changing that nakam from repent to relent. They're dishonest. That this is, there's no reason to use relent. I, I, I just have no respect for them. That it is completely political. And it doesn't even. Well, 
it, it, it could be also that they're lazy. Um, so a lot of times when people are translating, they use existing translations as reference material. And translating is hard, long, tedious work. And so sometimes people are just lazy. So it, it could be it could be nefarious. Yes, it could be just pure laziness. Well, I, I think I went to Bible Hub, and that's a good reference if you want to know what the Hebrew or the Greek says. Have Bible Hub, but they have a parallel uh, verses where they go to different translations, and and for each verse, and they and the one particular verse I was looking at Jeremiah twenty six three, and and they had a I'm guessing now, but it's it's about twenty times. Uh, that they had uh, translated that verse in different translations. Half of them say relent, and the other half say some form of repent. It's very interesting. It's So even the experts are divided, but unfortunately, the, yeah, there it is. The new translations seem to always go with relent. Well, look at the New Living. Look at New Living. Perhaps they will listen and turn from their evil ways. Then I will change my mind about the disaster I'm ready to pour out on them because of their sins. Exactly. There you go. Yeah, change my mind. Uh, yeah, new, new living gets it right. <laughs> I know. I know you would like that translation, but they got that one right. <laughs> but that well, me, that new Calvin, that, they got it wrong every time. Well, they don't always get it wrong. They just sometimes get it wrong. Sometimes they actually... Uh, translate things in an open theistic sense like god says i thought uh israel would do this but then they did not and they translated it as a future where the king james will try to say i said for them to do this but then they didn't and so just depending on where you are in the english standard version you know it's hit or miss well that's why i encourage everybody to learn greek and hebrew <laughs> But New Living Translation is probably like, all our readers don't know what repent means, and all our readers don't know what relent means. So we'll just, <laughs> we'll probably just, just uh, write it out, something easy to digest. That's probably what actually went on there with their, their mindset. It's, I, I just, the, the dishonesty in this translation, what they know what relent means, these translators. They understand the English, and I think I think you're being too kind to them. I think they're being dishonest. You, you might underestimate people's laziness, but. <laughs> <laughs> so that's all I have with that. All righty. Uh, anything else in any of the papers? I got like a bunch of them pulled up. Uh, maybe I don't anymore. Maybe they disappeared. At the bottom of there, you see that stuff in Hebrew there? That's yeah, I don't know. What are you doing there? <laughs> what are, it's for my reference so that I can look at it. Hey, oh, okay. And so then I, I'm going to have to put this into Google Translate or something? It's a Jeremiah 110 and it's Jeremiah 18. So those are the leave note and the lean tosh and lean totes. <laughs> I really like it. You know, lean tosh is, is to pluck up. Pluck it up from the bottom. Lean toes is to pull it down from the top. And then he just sums it up and says to destroy it. Read it in the Hebrew. It's really, 
it gives you this color that you just gotta appreciate. My favorite thing in like uh, scholarly papers, like especially older papers, is where like they'll start talking about uh, a verse or a text or something in history, and they'll just they'll all be English, and they'll say, as this German scholar says, and then they'll all be in German. <laughs> and then it'll go on and be like, this French scholar says this, and it's all in French. And you're like, what? Am I supposed to be reading like five different languages in order to read this paper? Can you like have a footnote with translation or something? I, I can't read five different languages. <laughs> or Latin. Latin's the one I really like. That one's tough. Uh, yeah, they'll they'll tra they'll quote Kelvin in Latin or something. It's <laughs> okay. At least he's not doing it in French. <laughs> I think all of uh, the Servetus trials is written in Latin. They're, they're official documents. And so maybe a good project for once I become a Bitcoin millionaire, I don't know, is uh, to pay someone to translate all that into English so that there is a free account of the entire trial, the Servetus trial, for everyone's references. Uh, no, Servetus was way too close to Calvin for me. <laughs> right, Calvin would uh, Calvin would have destroyed everyone because they're not they didn't believe in pedo baptism. So all these Southern Baptist people that are Calvinists, Calvin would not like them. I I don't expect so. All right, I guess uh, we'll cut there. We're running about an hour. I think uh, we covered Jeremiah twenty six pretty well. Okay, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. All right. Everyone, thanks for uh, coming.